Welcome to Third Eye Education. Today we are talking to Arij Makati. She is the Managing Director of Culture Change at Pillars Fund. And this is a phenomenal conversation. We're so excited to have you join us today. Also, thank you to Ann Hollowell who edited this episode. So one thing that we are focusing on a lot in school districts across the nation, and obviously including here in Dover Yoda, is focusing on diversity. And in a lot of districts, that's focusing on diverse pedagogical approaches, using diverse texts, creating welcoming and safe environments, all great things, right? But the purpose is to shift is mainly to create this environment that's welcoming and inclusive within the district for their own BIPOC students, their LGBTQIA students, and so forth. However, Rarely is there communication or an understanding that we're preparing for a bigger world at large. And so for a lot of communities, kind of like our own, where we might not have as much of that visual diversity in-house, do you have any recommendations for how we might work on both of those things simultaneously? I'm, I'm so excited to have this chat. I think you're absolutely right that the world at large is continually changing. And what a lot of people don't realize is we know that the United States is going to be majority people of color, like in 2045. But what people don't know is that right now, today, under 18 is majority BIPOC already. So for folks that are in the K-12 system, this is already the world that they're in. So I work with an organization called Chicago Regional Organizers for Anti-Racism, and I love leading the ABAR workshops there. And ABAR, for those that don't know, stands for Anti-Bias, Anti-Racist Education. It is a really incredible kind of mode of thinking, mode of curriculum design that was created by Louise Sturman Sparks. And I think what you were saying is, you know, you can't actually, first of all, even meet that first goal of creating an environment for students that that are BIPOC or LGBTQ or don't identify with the dominant faith in this country and otherwise that are in the margins without creating empathy in those who belong to the dominant culture, right? So even that first goal is really difficult if you're not thinking about folks that do belong to the dominant culture, those students that are considered normal, right, standard, and good, which is how people often identify the dominant culture, which as we know is just a completely inaccurate representation of what is actually true. I really love the four goals of anti-bias education because they provide this framework for practicing anti-bias with children. And it's really grounded in what we know about how children construct identity and attitude because everyone has an identity, regardless of whether you're someone who is from a marginalized group or not. And I think the goals really allow us to create a safe, supporting learning community for every child. And they support children's development of a really confident sense of identity without needing to feel superior to others. The first goal is to really nurture each child's construction of a knowledgeable, confident, individual, personal, and social identity. And that allows kids to sort of demonstrate self-awareness, confidence, family pride, and positive social identities. And it's about supporting children to feel really strong and proud of who they are without needing to feel superior to anyone else. And that means that kids are going to learn accurate, respectful language to describe who they and others are and be encouraged to ask those questions and that teachers can support children to develop and be comfortable within their home cultures and within the school culture. Goal two is really interesting because it's all about diversity. And so you go beyond the self and teachers really think about promoting each child's comfortable, empathetic interaction with people from 
diverse backgrounds different from their own. And that goal means guiding children to be able to think about and have words for how people are the same, but also how they are different. And that includes helping kids feel and behave respectfully, warmly, and confidently with people who are different from themselves and encouraging them to learn both about how they're different from other kids and about how they're similar. And those are never really either or realities because people are simultaneously the same and different from one another. Some teachers and parents are not sure that they should encourage children to quote unquote notice and learn about differences among people. They may think it's just best to teach only about how people are the same, worrying that talking about differences causes prejudice. And while that's really well-intentioned, that concern arises from pretty mistaken notion about the sources of bias. Differences are not what create bias. Children learn prejudice from prejudice, not from learning about human diversity. So it's really how people respond to differences that teaches bias and fear. So I would say the third goal, this is where it gets really spicy and I get really excited with goals three and four. Um, the third goal is around justice. So teachers being able to foster each child's capacity to be really critical in identifying bias and nurturing their empathy for the hurt bias causes. The fourth goal is all about activism. So taking all those learnings and pushing them to do with their learnings. And that's about teachers cultivating each child's ability and confidence to stand up for themselves and for others in the face of bias. And that really allows them to demonstrate a sense of empowerment and the skills to act with others or alone against prejudice or discriminatory actions. So I can actually give you like a really cute example from a pre-K class that I really loved. One of the teachers that I once worked with had a class of pre-K students and they had a parking lot out in the pre-K center where someone who didn't have a tag that identified them as disabled was parking in a disabled spot. And they noticed these children noticed and they said, well, that doesn't seem fair. And the teacher asked them in a very student-centered way, like, well, what do you think we should do about it? These pre-K students sort of dictated and worked with their teacher to write a lovely letter to this person that had been parking in this spot and said, we don't think this is fair. We want everybody to be able to come into our school in a way that is safe for them and comfortable for them. And when you take this spot away, that will prevent some of our friends from getting into the school safely. Just in that pre-K class, they were able to take something they noticed and turn it into an opportunity for writing curriculum, for being able to express themselves, et cetera. So I think that A-bar goals are like a really, really great place to start uh, to prepare kids for that world. We had a conversation recently with Amit and Gori Sood about how to, I guess I'm going to paraphrase it as foster humanity, how to be comfortable, how to be warm, welcoming, how to build relationships. And it seems like that's throughout all of those pieces. Curiosity helps students to be curious and ask questions and grow. I think it's really interesting that there is a strong through line between uh, mental health, social, emotional learning, and this. The touchy subject right now is that whether we like it or not as educators, we have to find a way to navigate through some of the political machinations out there with regard to talking about race. For whatever reason, school districts across the country and right in Rochester and, and right in our neighborhood, I'm sure, we're going to be faced with people coming there asking us to not talk about this, that sweep this under the rug. And how do we continue to move forward with having important discussions about diversity and kindness and thinking about 
how unique and how wonderful people are around us without having us become restricted or banded by some community moral that now says you can't talk about this. It is pretty disheartening to see the backlash against something that I think actually just comes from ignorance. And by ignorance, I just mean like people don't actually understand. Critical race theory is actually pretty different than than anti-bias, anti-racist education as well. And it's a pretty advanced concept. And so something I've been thinking about a lot is just demystifying what anti-bias, anti-racist training looks like. I can't really imagine a parent coming to a session and being told these are the four goals that we're working on and hearing the example that I just gave about these adorable little preschoolers and and them feeling afraid of that. And so I think it's sort of up to us to uncover and demystify what I think the media has just done a really poor job aggravating, particularly for folks that belong to the dominant culture around this sphere that you know, maybe I'm becoming irrelevant, or maybe my child is going to be taught that they are bad simply because of being born into a more wealthy zip code or being, you know, someone who is fair skinned. So I think that is just something to, to really think about is demystifying that for parents and, and allowing them into the process a little bit. We talked to Dessa a while back. One thing that she really encouraged people to do was take at least a half an hour a day to, to just really dig into a question that they have. And I do think that we have really set ourselves up in a world where algorithms and such decide what we want to see, right? And so we start seeing the same things on repeat. I've recently been reading Adam Grant's Think Again. And in that book, he talks a lot about the need to unlearn. And I think there's a lot of unlearning that can happen by following our curiosities. And when I think about Mike's question regarding CRT and other things that community members might be advocating for, sometimes it's because they haven't had that opportunity or they haven't followed that thread that leads them to the wider expanse of understanding, right? Uh, Because they've got and stuck in this algorithm cycle of of hearing the same things over and over again without letting themselves push outside of that box. I consistently ask myself when I'm about to have a night, you know, a thought, I say like, is this thought coming from judgment or from curiosity? Valuing curiosity over judgment and just making the distinction between those two pieces. There are some really, really great spaces online where people have sort of created these vaults where you actually don't even really have to do much work on your own other than to search for the vaults from experts who have the lived experience that might be different from your own and the academic experience that might be different from your own and the emotional experience that might be different from your own. I also think particularly for children, and this is, I think, difficult for adults to model if they have not been socialized into this themselves. We have to teach kids to be open to being wrong. People really struggle and feel shamed when they're wrong. In a science class, I think about how the theories that we've proved are just a result of getting every other answer wrong. That is a really exciting way, I think, to, to share with kids that when you are wrong, you're actually just getting closer to what the answer is. People really struggle to know when they're wrong in a way that causes harm. We don't actually teach kids how to apologize properly. We need just we need to just normalize the process of apology when when we are wrong in a way that causes harm and relearning those structures of the black and white nature which does not exist in truth of being open to being wrong and being open to someone else being right and celebrating that. 
and also being open to the idea that there is no right or wrong sometimes and that it's okay when we disagree. So those pieces are are huge for me. And I work primarily now in like the realm of storytelling. And I do that because I deeply believe in storytelling as an engine for social change. The research all shows that when you are exposed to stories of folks that are different from your own experience, your mind changes. Essentially, folks who don't identify as straight, white, cisgender men can turn on the TV any time of day and empathize with a straight, white, cisgender man. And the more that we're able to experience narratives of folks who belong to different intersectionality, different intersectional identities than us, the more that we'll have the opportunity to learn to empathize with other folks and see other perspectives. For our listeners, this is now a thread. Heather mentioned Dessa, who talked about the power of stories. I've mentioned the Suds, who talked about the power of stories. Scott Goodson talks about using stories to make transformative change. You were saying how easy it is to seek out experiences that are different than your own, that there are vaults that are created. Do you have any particular recommendations for our listeners that they could check out? I actually put together a syllabus called Arabs for Black Power. That is really interesting to think about the ways that as Arab people, we can be in solidarity with Black folks, particularly in this continuing time, decades and centuries of intentional violence against Black folks in this country. I think there are some pretty incredible book list, um, a really good anti-bias, anti-racist book list as well. Is it We Need Diverse Books? I also really like recommending, I think it's National Public Radio. They put together book concierge at the end of each year and you can sort and pick if you want to do nonfiction, fiction, whatever. There's also some really good podcasts out there like yours. This is one way in. There's really great podcasts like The Nod or the National Conversation about the conversation about race that are really lovely that I would welcome people to check out. Are there any practices that you would love to see retired, particularly from the education environment, but that people think are positive and helpful? and either are inconsistent in their outcomes or just always bad? There are some really well-intentioned things that we do that I struggle with. We often tokenize and squeeze the history of certain groups into a particular month or week. And I think that can actually have like a pretty harmful effect. And so I think the most commonly seen issue is Black History Month. That's an example of this. So, you know, for the most part, Educators will only have K-12 students learn about Black history during the month of February. And they're hearing about the same few historical figures over and over who are wonderful people, right? Like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman and President Barack Obama. There has never been an America without Black people, ever. So we know that all historical events have a Black perspective. And that Black people have been making history every day since they were forcefully kidnapped and brought here. But somehow we can only fit that into one month of learning. Something I'd really like to see retired is this idea of cramming sort of like the greatest hits of a certain section of our student communities into a certain time frame and ask ourselves in every lesson, how do we weave those cultures, perspectives, identities, and histories throughout our curriculum? So for example, even if you're learning about George Washington, there's a Black perspective there. We know that he interfaced for good or for bad, mostly for bad with black folks. So like, what did that look like? What did the resistance look like? And I think often people forget that anytime there was oppression, there has always been resistance. And so there's always an opportunity to teach about both of those things, regardless of of what the event is. Obviously, my background is in the English classroom. And I think about how 
it's very common that we pick a title and be like, okay, there, we have a diverse author, right? Then that brings me back to, I think it was a 2009 TED Talk, Danger of a Single Story, that concept of how we are then just teaching one lens. So even if we are teaching a perspective that's more diverse, whether it be a female author or a Black author or you know a queer author, whatever that case is, that's just one perspective from that world. And there's so much intersectionality that if you were to teach a different author from the same time period, from the same gender or the same sexual identity or the same ethnicity, the same cultural background, all that stuff, it's still going to be a very different text. We actually just had an article written by poet in residence, Jean Procott, where she talks about the complexity of that. In the world of education, we only have so many funds. So how do you rotate your texts enough so that you get that diversity? Do you have any suggestions or ideas along that line of how we don't elevate just one story? This is such a good question. I will say too, like you have a poet in residence. Highly recommend picking up her books. Oh, so good. She's uh, our poet in residence for third eye education. She's actually a teacher at Century High School in Rochester. I love that so much that you're doing that. You're right that particularly novels can be a little less accessible, but there are so many other types of great literature that are really accessible. You can often find like PDFs of wonderful short stories online or entire chapbooks of of phenomenal poetry online that are, are accessible because of the generosity of those writers. Even if we can't have a hundred books that, you know, are from different perspectives that are full length novels, we can still introduce a hundred different perspectives through shorter texts. And as I'm sure all three of you know, a short story can do more than a novel if it's the right short story. So I would recommend exploring that. There are also opportunities to do some student led choice and how students are choosing the books that they read. So while I know that it's important for some students, let's say in an English class, to read the same book together all the time, it could be a really cool opportunity to say like, well, what book do you want to read for this particular unit and expand so you could have 30 different books in one class. And so I always like to take it back to the student-centered approach and have them have input on their own learning and what they're curious about. I think that's always a really interesting way to go about it and expand that. We always end our podcast with the same three questions, part because it helps us get to that time limit, but also because we think they're good questions. Our first question, what podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? Or whatnot. Um, So I am a collector of the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran's works. He's really important to me, and I recommend that everybody read him. But I recently got this incredible gift of a very early and rare edition of a book called Blue Flame, which is a collection of his love letters to a woman named Ziade. And uh, Gibran and Maisie knew one another solely from each other's work. They never met. The roaming of their spirits in search of eternal reality, right? And like each other as these kindred souls. I'm just really thinking a lot about this book right now because in this time where we're all still masking and learning to really love on one another from so far apart, it's been a real bomb on my soul to understand the ways in which we can build from a distance and how to emulate real intimacy and nearness when we can't physically be together. So it's a book I've been thinking about a lot. I got number two. We really value innovation. What is one innovation that you've recently seen or would really like to see happen? I would really, really love to see us innovate on the way that we support 
all children to reach their highest educational aspirations, regardless of income level. And I think particularly higher education. I feel like if COVID has taught us anything, it's that when we want to, we can actually do things like publicly fund education and forgive student loans and offer people stimulus checks if we wanted to. I think the time has long passed when we need to make higher education more accessible to anyone who wants it. Listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning. What might that first action be? I do teach ABAR anti-bias, anti-racism training days through Chicago Regional Organizers for Anti-Racism. And I would encourage you to go to our webpage if you're interested in learning more. We do a full eight-hour day of training on this for educators specifically. Also, if you're interested in doing some learning on your own, I would say you can buy the ABAR book by Louise Sturman Sparks to begin sort of reconceptualizing your curriculum. And I always encourage people to think of one thing that they can start, stop, or change tomorrow. One thing that you can start, stop, or change in the next month. And one thing you can start, stop, or change in the next year based on what you learned. Everything that you shared with today, it's just fantastic. It's just nice. It's, it's nice <laughs> when you get to learn from, from former students and they become your teachers. I'm so glad. I don't get to do as much like direct work in the education space anymore since I'm not working at a school, but I always love talking about it and being involved in the conversation. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It was really fun. Thank you so much to Arish Bacati, to our listeners, to Dover Yoda, to our podcasters, Nick Truxtell, Heather Like, Mike Carolyn, to Michael Terrell for doing our music, to Anne Hallowell for editing this episode. We are really looking forward to our upcoming guests. We will have a conversation with Amit and Gori soon. And soon we'll be having a return guest. We're really looking forward to that. It's Myron Dueck.